We're going to be today in 1 John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking today at verses 6 through 13. We are rapidly approaching the end of this epistle, and if you have been with us throughout this entire journey of the epistle of 1 John, I pray that it has been as much a blessing to you as it has been to me. I love this epistle because I love that it is kind of black and white. It's kind of binary in its approach. Uh, We see John truly writing as one of the sons of thunder, right? But even more, we see that John reiterates several important points concerning Christ as he has written this letter primarily to defend against the Gnostic heresy. We see some of these things in the first five verses of this chapter. Look at verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Pretty clear and compelling. Verse 2. Believers, love is evident when we love God and we observe his commandments. And verse 5, who is the believer? Who is the overcomer? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 13. And we're going to see a rather crucial key word that's going to appear. That word is the word witness or the word testify. Which is used eight times between verses 6 through 12. And John is about to make the final case. This is chapter 5. This is it. He's going to make the final case regarding Jesus Christ, that not only Jesus is who he claimed himself to be, but that the Father himself validated Christ by the Father's own testimony. Now, in John's defense against the heresy of Gnosticism, John will show that the Father himself bore testimony of Christ. So now you don't have merely an independent human eyewitness, but the Father himself will testify of Christ, that Christ is the beloved Son, that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is the Savior. In verses 6 through 9, John shows that God testified of his Son, Jesus Christ, at his baptism by the Holy Spirit, and even at the cross. So I've entitled this message today, The Witness of God. The Witness of God. And we're going to see two really important facts regarding that. Number one, that the Father bore witness and the Father testified of Christ. Right? And we're going to see that in verses 6 through 9. And then secondly, that the testimony of God is superior to the testimony of God. Of men. We're going to see that from verses 9 through 12. And if that is true, this is the premise that he's going to lay out. If in fact that is true, which it is true, we're going to see, therefore, we must believe God's witness. We must believe God's witness. So let's take a look at the first one. The Father testifies, or the Father's testimony is of Christ. Look at me with verses 6 and 7. It reads as follows, And this is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. And if you have a King James Version, it says, The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. And I love that. That's important. That's important Christology. It's an important doctrine. So these verses at times, you know, people have read these verses at time. It has created some confusion, especially the usage of the term water, blood, spirit. And there have been many different interpretations for what does the water, what does the blood, and what does the spirit mean. I'm not going to get into the alternative interpretations. I'm just going to share with you what I believe the Scripture clearly teaches regarding these three. 
And I want you, in order to do that, in order to establish that, I want you to keep your, your eyes on the context, right? We always talk about context being king. Context is king, right? The overall point that John is making in this portion of the text is that Christ has the witness of the Father. That's the point. So I want you to know that. Christ has the witness of the Father. The Father has testified to who Christ was. And this witness was made evident in various portions of Christ's life, right? Now, to understand this text, it's critical that we define one of the key words in this text, which is witness or testify, okay? It is the Greek word martyreo, martyreo, okay? And it simply means eyewitness, I, not eyewitness, not eyewitness, but eyewitness. I want to be clear with that. It means that I witness, bear witness, I give evidence, uh, um, I give evidence, I testify to a particular point, okay? That I testify, I bear witness, and that witness is of truth, right? Ideally. But martyreo became synonymous with people who were dying for the faith of Christ, can you think of an English word that sounds like martyreo that we use today to talk about someone who is willing to sacrifice their life, right? It's a martyr. And the martyr, the word martyr, has its origins in witness or testify. What does a martyr do? A martyr doesn't simply die. A martyr dies as a result of a witness or a testimony. And this is the point that is here. John mentioned this is the one who came by water. Let's, let's take a look at that. What is water? What is water representative of? Water is representative of Christ's baptism. Christ's ministry begins with baptism. Christ's ministry, earthly ministry, ends at the cross, right? So it is the beginning, it's the end. So the water is reflective of the baptism that began at Jesus' ministry. And the question that you should be asking, well, what is significant? Well, the Father gave the testimony of Jesus. He gave that testimony that Jesus was his only begotten son, right? John the Baptist preached, right? Remember, let's go back to early John, the Gospel of John. John the Baptist preached a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you got to remember something. John the Baptist went out preaching within Israel baptism for the repentance of sins. Now, right now, I know for most of you that doesn't hit you automatically. But you got to understand something. That in Israel at the time, the thought was that because I am a son of Abraham, because I am circumcised, effectively, I'm good with God. Salvation by racial or generic genetic heritage. I'm good with God. And, and there were many things I could do, even though I realized I couldn't keep the law. There were a lot of alternatives. There were a lot of remedies for my failing to keep a law. What was the remedy? Well, I could offer up a sacrifice to the Lord. I could bring a grain offering to the Lord. I could I can offer a, a two turtle doves if I was poor. I could offer up a goat. Plus, the high priest at the end of the year came into the temple on the day of Yom Kippur and offer up atonement for the nation. So I'm effectively good. I want you to get this picture because this is critical. Here comes this guy who for all purposes did not fit the mold of a prophet. He didn't come in regal robes. Matter of fact, if you really look at it, John the Baptist was basically a homeless person. And he came out preaching ragtag garments wild man eating locusts and, and all this other different stuff, but he came preaching, repent, 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 for the kingdom of God is at hand. And for 400 years in Israel, at the time, there was no prophet. 
No one said, thus saith the Lord. And the Spirit of God was upon John the Baptist. The Spirit of God was upon him in power and authority that when he did in fact preach, it caused people to stand still and hear what the prophet said. As a matter of fact, he was esteemed in Israel. They were probably thinking, oh, here is a, here's a prophet. Here's a true prophet indeed. Now, it should also catch your attention, should be interesting to you, where did baptism come from? There was no baptism in the law. There was no baptism in Israel. And here comes this man and telling him, hey, you're going to be baptized. Where did it come from? Well, in Israel, they had ceremonial cleansings, ceremonial washings, right? And if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, there was a process where they would have to ceremonially clean themselves. How did they do that? They were washed. They were washed in water. And they had the ceremonial cleansing. And the ceremonial cleansing that took place was to indicate that this person is no longer a Gentile, that their sin has been washed clean, and now this person is a son of Abraham. And by the way, they had to get circumcised too, which had to be a rough ordeal. And so they had this ceremonial cleansing. When John the Baptist went forward and he was preaching, repent and be baptized, what he was preaching was come and repent and be washed clean because the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God is near. Now, stay with me just an, an, another two more minutes. What does this all mean? It means that those who came forth to be baptized under John the Baptist, the statement that they were making with their life is, although I am a Jew, although I am a son of Abraham, my estate before God is not better than that of a Gentile. Scandalous. That's, that's scandalous in Israel. They, did, they were saying, I'm as unclean as that Gentile. Any, any decent son of Israel would say, no way, the Gentiles are the most contemptible thing in the world. But those whose message John the Baptist, whose, whose hearts were pricked, they recognized their sinful estate. I need a Savior. I need to be changed. I need to be cleansed. We see this in the first chapter of John when John is baptizing down at the river and the Pharisees come to, to check him out. Oh, who is this guy? They come to check him out. And remember John the Baptist in his typical politically correct fashion said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath of God that is to come? Bring forth fruits of repentance. Yeah, John had a way with words. Do you remember what the Pharisees say to us, say to him? They say, we have Abraham as our father. Did that ever strike you weird when you were reading it? We have Abraham as our father. What would they say? We're of Israel. We don't need your sin of repentance. We don't need to be converted. We don't need that proselyte baptism. We're of Israel. We are made sure. We are strong. We are redeemed. We are circumcised. We keep the law. Who are you to tell us? Come and get baptized. Profound difference, right, between a cultural faith 
and a true faith in Jesus Christ. So many people get lost in a cultural faith. Well, you know, I'm, I'm this religion, I was born this way, I'm going to die this way, I'm that religion, I'm going to be born this way and die. But the only thing that matters is, are you right with God? Amen. Now, within that context, here comes Jesus, down by the Jordan. And John the Baptist sees him coming, and he goes, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And Jesus does something weird. John, baptize me. Baptize you? You, you should be baptizing me. How do you say baptize you? Here comes Jesus, the sinless one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and he goes to John the Baptist. He said, baptize me. We see this, right? In, John, in Matthew 3.14, it says, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. But Jesus was baptized publicly, to identify with the sinners he came to save. Just let that sink in a moment. Jesus was baptized publicly so that Jesus could identify with the sinners that he came to save. I often think, oh Lord, my God, how could you identify with me? How could you identify with me, a wretched mess that I am? Listen to Matthew. Matthew 3.15, Jesus says this, permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What did the Old Testament say of John the Baptist? He's the one that comes to clear the way for the Lord. Those that were coming to John in repentance, their heart was seeking repentance, who would follow John the Baptist. Here would come Jesus with the message of the gospel, of putting their faith in Jesus Christ, right? These people would respond, and they would respond to the gospel. Notice what it says in Matthew 3.16. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John here in verses in 6 and 7 of 1 John 5 says, This is the one who came by water and the blood. This was the one whom God testified at the baptism of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit came down as a dove and the voice from heaven shouted what? This is my beloved Son. And God bore testimony right there at the river Jordan of who Jesus is. Notice what else it says. He says, this is the one who came by water and the blood, but not only water also, but water and the blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness. What happened at the baptism? The Spirit of God descended, it was visible, and a voice from heaven came out declaring and he declares something rather significant he says this is the one this is very specific in the greek it doesn't just point to something what it is is it's an emphatic term this is the one this is the christ this is the one you should be listening for this is the one you may have been looking for this is the one that can save. The voice of the Spirit still goes out today declaring that truth this very day. This is the one. 
is not the Christ of many. It is the specific Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man. It is the God-Man who came. This is the one. This is the one we worship. This is the one that we testify of. This is the one that we proclaim that neither is there salvation in any other. It is Christ. Here the voice of the Father at the baptism testifies and it bears witness of Christ being that beloved Son of God. Turn over in your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 1. I just want to show you this real quick. Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning with verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, the him is Christ. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to be baptized in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. God himself bore witness of Christ. What a glorious truth. And now John, as he's summing up this epistle in chapter 5, remember, he's summing up everything that he wrote in the previous chapters, now reiterates this important point. This is the one who says so. The Father has said so repeatedly. Notice what else he says. He goes, this is the one who came by water and the blood. So the Father testified at Christ's beginning of his ministry, likewise the Father testified at the end of Christ's earthly ministry, and this is reflected in the blood, at the cross, as Christ was upon the cross. The blood is a reference to the cross of Calvary, where the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, and his blood was shed for the remission, for the forgiveness of sins. The place where propitiation took place. We've used that word before, meaning simply that Christ satisfied the justice of God. Sin was paid for. Where propitiation was made, where atonement was made. John speaks about this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. For our sins. Paul speaks about this in his epistle of Romans. In Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Listen, Christ's death was public. Christ's death was visible. Christ's death was physical. Because Christ was God in man, his death was physical, and he physically rose from the dead. It was at Christ's death that the Father once again testified. So he testifies at the beginning at the baptism. He testifies at the end. In Matthew 27, 45, you don't have to turn there, but Matthew 27, 45 records supernatural darkness descending upon the land. Earthquakes came. Tombs were opened. Dead were raised. The dead were walking around and they were testifying. But if you think about it, all of this was overwhelming. The veil in the temple was torn in two. That veil wasn't just a curtain. It was a very, very heavy, heavy, heavy curtain that a man couldn't just tear down by itself. That veil was torn in two, symbolizing that God is no longer separated by man. All these things testified. This is God testifying to who Christ is. Listen, Christ, God even testified through the testimony of an unbeliever. 
The centurion at the cross cried out as he saw the earthquakes, as he saw the darkness, as he must have seen the tombs open. He cried out, truly this man must be the son of God. This is overwhelming that the father testified. You think about it, there's other places on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. God testified. Look at verse 8, 1 John 5. For there are three that bear witness, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. As we've established, the water Christ baptism, the spirit, the Holy Spirit descending, and the blood, the death of Christ, all these things testify, they're in agreement that this is the one, the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Listen, in 1 John 5, 5, John writes this. This is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. And John speaks of this truth. When he talks about the one, it speaks of Christ's uniqueness. Not that he's like anybody else, but he is unique. In verse 6, John states, this is the one who came by water and the blood. Once again, Jesus Christ is the object of whom John is speaking. This is the one whom the Father testified. Now he says in verse 8, all these three elements, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, they all come together to give one resounding testimony as to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And this is critical, this is critical in John's defense. And I'm going to tell you why. Because Gnosticism denied these truths. In Gnosticism, because they believed that matter, anything, would anything, was inherently evil. In Gnosticism, Christ could have never have become a man. Never. How could God take on evil by becoming matter? See, they taught that God was spirit, right? And in order to know God, you have to have this super-duper mystical experience, and then that's the only way you can know God. So what they taught in Gnosticism as they went around to the churches sharing this error is they, they, the first thing they tell you, well, number one, Jesus couldn't have been God, that's number one, because God would never take on matter. He would never take on form. So Jesus was the Son of God, but here's the difference. You see, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Jesus, what he did is captivated a human body. So he kind of possessed a human body. And then it was through that human body that Jesus did all these great works and these great miracles. It was, in effect, spirit doing that work, except he was using a body to be able to do it. But then when it came time for the cross, Jesus vacated the body. He vacated the body. The body went back to being an ordinary human being, and up on the cross died an ordinary human being. What does that do to the doctrine of salvation? What does it do to the doctrine of salvation? This is why these things are not subtle, mere doctrinal differences. There's a lot of talk about Christ, but who is the Christ that people proclaim? See, we proclaim that Christ was in fact God, that just as the prophet Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that Christ did, in fact, take the form of a human being. 
that Christ walked the earth as a physical human being. That means when Christ was a baby, and as that baby grew up, he had to learn how to walk, and he had to learn how to speak, and he had to be fed, and he had to be doing everything. And if he felt, he got hurt, and if he dashed himself, he bled just like any other human being, which also means that on the cross, every blow was the same as if you were receiving that blow. I remember when I was a kid, we used to watch Superman, right? The black and white Superman, right? And there was always this scene in Superman, right, when he would go catch the criminals and they would punch him and Superman would stand like this, you know, and then they would shoot him and he would stand like this, right? He couldn't be, he wasn't affected by the blows. That wasn't Christ on the cross. He was affected by those blows. He felt that pain. He was bruised, the prophet Isaiah says. He was battered. As a matter of fact, if you read the prophet Isaiah in Hebrew, it talks about how his face is disconfigured. That's how bad he was beaten. That he hardly looked like a man. So Gnosticism that is, was moving through the early churches was denying the deity. They were denying the uniqueness of Christ. They were denying that this Christ was indeed the one and encountered with the truth. Listen to the Apostle Paul. We've, we've used this verse before, but the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says about this. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, who although he existed in the form of God. By the way, the Greek word there for form is morphe. It's where we get metamorphosis, right? right? So when he talks about existing in the form of God, what that literally means is the exact substance. It's not a duplicate. It's the same. So notice what Paul says, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, notice these words now, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Listen, salvation could have never been accomplished had Christ not come down and take the form of a human being. It was his body on the cross. It was in his body that Christ made atonement for sin. Paul writes to the church in Galatians in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Notice the words now. Born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. This epistle of 1 John is a defense of the gospel. It is a defense of Christ's deity. It is a, it is a defense of of the doctrine of salvation. And that's why John in this epistle is so black and white, not mixing words, presenting vivid pictures of who, in fact, is this Christ. So we looked at the first part, that the Father testified of Christ. Let's look at the second point. The testimony of God is superior to the testimony of men. Look at verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness of his Son. Herein lies the key verse, and herein lies the application for all of us who would call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. Listen, we see the testimony of men all around us, don't we? We do. 
We see the testimony of men all around us. We hear of the great things the human race is doing, the great learnings and technologies that humans have achieved. We entrust ourselves to some of these things and to some of these truths, right? It's not a bad thing always, but some of these things are good. You get sick, you go to a doctor. What is that? It's the entrusting yourself to the, the, you know, the great learnings of human beings. But notice what John says here. But behold, God's testimony is greater than the testimony of humans. God has testified concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, God testified in the Old Testament, and he has testified in the New. God testified at Christ's baptism. God testified at Christ's crucifixion. God testified at the resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God testified at Jesus' ascension into heaven. God testified at the birth of the church via the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon the church. God testifies through the church, the gospel. And listen, God testifies through the lives of those who love him. God's testimony still goes into the world today. Listen, brothers and sisters, we have such a sure word. We have a sure word, a sure foundation, a God who has tested time and time again through history. And though this world may mock, and it does, right? Though this world may mock, the testimony of God still stands today. It still stands today. And God still bears witness of his son and the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. And I think this is a great point for us to pause and to seriously contemplate. Do you know that Christ? Do you know that one? Do you walk daily in his presence? Do you strive to love him and hunger after righteousness and hunger after Christ? Is he more precious to you than anything else that you have in this world? Do you love him? Do you desire him? Have you entrusted yourself completely, wholly, and fully to the salvation that he is offered. Listen, if you haven't, will you repent? Will you turn from your sin and turn from trusting yourself and turn to Christ and say, Father, I surrender. Forgive my sin. I trust Christ and Christ alone for my eternal salvation. If you will do that, he will make you new. He will make you new. Look at verse 10. John writes, the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Praise God for that. If you are saved, you have the witness of God in you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had foreordained that we should walk in them. But notice what he says. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. It is a serious thing to reject the son of God. It is an eternal thing to reject. Listen, there's only two answers. Yes, Lord, I believe, I surrender. Or there's no, I disregard that testimony. Listen, 1 John 1, verses 2 and 4. Go over a few chapters. 1 John 1, verses 2 to 4. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write. I I love this. These things we write. Why? That our joy may be made complete. Paul writes to the church in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, he talks about that it's in Christ that we dwell And he makes this statement, I believe it's Colossians 2.10, and in him we are complete. Oh, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we lack nothing. Nothing. In Christ we are complete. He has provided everything that we ever needed. And there's nothing that we don't have that he has not provided us. Listen, unlike the Gnostics, the the one that only a few can know, that Jesus of history who they claim, only a few can have this knowledge. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus of the Father provides undeserving sinners fellowship with the Father. Oh, please, I beg you. I beg you. Do not trivialize with God. When you have that opportunity to come before the Lord alone in prayer, honor that opportunity. He's given you the opportunity to enter into his throne room, throne room and to enter in with boldness and to make our requests known and find what? Grace and mercy and help in time of need. God opens up the door to knowing him. And what we cannot achieve in and of ourselves, we can through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen, as believers, we have access to the Father, intimacy with the Father. We could bring our request to the Father. Believers have a Savior, whoever lives to make intercession for the saints, the Spirit of God inside them, who prays for believers when we don't know what to pray. I'm sure many of you have come to that point in your life whether you were going through a rough circumstance that when you got alone with God where you didn't know, you couldn't put together words and you couldn't articulate the suffering and you couldn't articulate the pain. But God has given the believers the Holy Spirit who prays for us, the Bible says, with groanings, groanings, and they're too deep for words. Why? Because he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. He's equipped the believer with this. The glories, the glories of being in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, it far exceeds anything that this world has to offer. The sad part is to deny the testimony of Christ, is to say that God's testimony of him was false, It is to say that God's testimony of him in one matter or another is not true. That was precisely what the Gnostics were doing, which is why Paul writes this defense of the gospel. They were denying Christ, and in denying Christ, they denied God. Look at verses 11 and 12. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John concludes this section by contrasting and comparing. He's contrasting and he's comparing. The one who has eternal life against those that do not. Eternal life, he says, found only in Jesus Christ. Period. The Christ of Scripture. The Christ whom God testified of. Here we see, by the way, the exclusivity of Christ. This is important. The Apostle Peter put it this way in Acts uh, 4.12. He says this, 
and there is salvation in no one else. Now listen, there's not a lot of interpretation that's needed there. That is a pretty clear statement. Neither is there salvation in anyone else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Note what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Look at verse 12 again of chapter 5. He who has the Son has life. Stop right there. Those that come to repentance and faith in Christ have life. What life? New life. Eternal life. Born from above. Born of God. They have that life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But pastor... What about that person that is really sincere in their religion and, you know, they, they're really sincere and they really, what happens? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Now, to the believer, that should do something to us, shouldn't it? I mean, just logically, are we going to be so calculated and cold that we're going to see people go into hell? We're not going to make an attempt? What does that do for the believer? It puts a burden on our heart for those that are outside of Christ. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Charles Spurgeon makes an amazing statement. I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not doing anything else. I'm not quoting exactly, but paraphrase. He said, listen, if our loved ones around us decide to go to hell and ignore the warnings of the gospel, may they go to hell with us wrapped around their ankles, begging them for their last breath, repent, repent, repent. We cannot be men and women of God that become indifferent to lost souls. We must be men and women of God that have a burden for the lost. And let me tell you how that plays out. I know every time I say this, some people go, but you don't understand. I'm not a guy who's going to stand on a street corner and give out a track. Good, don't do it. Huh? What did you say? I said, don't do it. But there are people in your life to whom you have earned the right to speak the gospel. There are people in your life that if you open up and you share, let me tell you something that I want to share with you. The influence of my life. I want to tell you about Christ. And you testify to the blood and the, and, and the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You have that right. and You can do that. Some people, it's the easiest thing in the world to walk up to them and say, hey, I want to give you a track. I want to talk to you. Some people can walk up to people and say, hey, can I talk to you? And, you know, they get rejected a thousand times, doesn't even phase them. But each of us have those in our lives that we love. We have an obligation. I'm not putting guilt here. I'm just saying that God would give us a compassion for the lost, that God would give us a compassion for those that are outside of Jesus Christ. And let us be the ones to proclaim that, listen, there's life in the Son. And we beg you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Look at verse 13, and with this we're going to close. John writes, summing up all of this epistle now, these things, what things? Everything that I have written to you. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. John closes this out with a final encouragement. After having exhaustively shown the beauty of Christ, the person of Christ, the marks and the character of a true believer, after spending, spending significant time articulating the agape love of God, 
John writes on the purpose and the aim of this entire epistle, and he states that this is written to those who believe in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Likewise, we as a church, we preach the word of God. We preach the scriptures. Why? So that believers may know that you have eternal life. Listen, we have this great assurance of the testimony of the Father. We have a great testimony in the love of Jesus Christ. There's a great hymn in the church called How Firm a Foundation. And the first stanza reads as this, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Church, we have a sure word. We have a sure word, a glorious word. That word is Jesus Christ. And that word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of God. It is the word that saved us, that word that justifies us before the Father, the word that sanctifies us before the Father, the word that will one day glorify us before the Father. Praise God. And because of that word, we can have confidence in Christ. That great hymn goes on to say this, The soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Saved, eternal life, never to be forsaken, beloved of God. These are the results of entrusting ourselves to the testimony and the witness of God the Father. As the Apostle John said, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father,